Welcome, listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode Nightmare Retrospective podcast. I'm one half of the Gestalt entity known as the Two Night Martins, Martin Harder. And I am the disordered part of the Gestalt split personality, Martin Odoni. And today we have a very special guest with us in the form of the brilliant neuroscientist and psychology lecturer, Dr. Bianca Hatton. Hi there, thanks for having me today. Uh, Yep, lecturer in psychology here at University of the West of Scotland. This should be a particularly interesting episode, not just because we're hoping that Bianca will be able to give us a better insight as to what goes through a Dungeoneer's brain when they answer a riddle with the word leopard. Insert laughter there, by the way. But also because Bianca has never seen an episode of Nightmare before now, so it's going to be intriguing to hear the opinion of somebody who's entirely new to the series. Today we're looking at episode 6 of series 2. This episode was first broadcast on October the 10th, 1988. Our number one movie at the UK box office was... Good morning, Vietnam! And our number one single was Whitney Houston's One Moment in Time. I did try to find the Canadian number ones, but I couldn't find them, unfortunately. Probably for the best. I have a high opinion of your own music industry. <laughs> you gave the world um, the joy of... Um, Celine Dion. You've exhausted my list. There's bound to be some good bands, but um, yeah. I think it's more just that you're crowded out by the Americans being made into the South. I don't... I don't... I don't think there's anything wrong with Canadian music from what I've heard of it. It's just, you just don't don't get enough exposure. And now time turns, the recording light burns, time out is gone, the podcast is on. Welcome back to the time of heroes, the age of adventure. Now heroes from your time can meet the challenge of nightmare. I, Treyguard, guardian and dungeon master, bid you welcome. One quest through my dungeon is even now in progress. So here's a progress report. From Oxfordshire came Mark and men. There seemed no way of stopping them. And though Dark Mogdred tried and tried, their bravery could not be denied. Onwards they pressed, quite undismayed, their quest to free a dungeon maid. Chased by whites, they journeyed deep, and then a dragon put to sleep. Till finally they cast a spell. And all was over. All was well. Winners they were, the very first to make the dungeon come off worse. But now the dungeon turns again to take on four young Kentish men. For Tony and his gallant pals must face the perils now themselves. Will they succeed? Well, watch and learn. For time will tell, and time. So we've got the Dungeon Ditty, first of all, and I make it two virtual rhymes this time. Yeah, I, I think you can you can argue there's loads of them in there. Um, I'm being generous. I, I'm going to give them a pass on this one. Um, dismayed rhyming with made is a bit of a cop-out, but it just about works. I don't think that was a bad one. I don't think that was a bad one. And we rejoined the team mid-riddle in the level one clue room. The items on the table are a bottle of ground bat's wings, a bar of silver, a fish with a red tint to its scales, and most likely a herring, and an apple. We already know from last week that they have answered incorrectly, and now we learn that the answer the wall monster is looking for is Scotsman. But name me now the kilted hordes who take the field and fight in clans. Army. Army. Falsehood. Scotsmen were the truth I sought. Scotland did not invent tartan plied until the 16th century. 
So there is no way the war monster could ever have heard of a kilt. It's very, very ambiguous exactly what universe this is happening in. So it could be that they can see into the future. But It's the pineapple paradox again, isn't it? It is. It is. How did a pineapple end up on a table in the Middle Ages? How did Scotsman in the 13th century wind up with a kilt? Well, it's obviously because Scotland is a temperate zone and the kilts were being brought in by birds um, from uh, Greece, which is where they had them originally. So um, coconuts. Well, Bianchi actually lives in Scotland so maybe she can give us a, a clearer picture. Yeah, I've been in Scotland for two and a half years now. I've finally been able to determine or distinguish the accent, but in terms of the history of Scotland, uh, I have a long way to go. I am aware that the kilt, you know, is relatively recent in the grand scheme of things, as as the tartans, as you mentioned. But um, yeah, temporal zone. I mean, I don't know if the sun. Do we really have a sun here? Are we actually on Earth? I, I couldn't tell you. Um, it's hazy all the time. I lived in Glasgow for about eight years, um, and I probably fewer than a hundred days in all that time um, wasn't covered in black clouds. So. Uh, um, I, I do sympathise. Because we're joining midway through the clue room, this time we only have one riddle. Spill the salt and earn bad luck. What action clears the matter up? Left hand over your right shoulder. Now, I do have an issue with this answer. First of all, the Dungeoneer doesn't say what you do with your left hand over your right shoulder. What he should have said was you throw the salt over your shoulder. One of the advisors does say throw the salt, but Tony doesn't mention it at all in his answer. And secondly, I've always been taught that the salt should be thrown over your left shoulder. Yeah, uh, can I add in here? Uh, yes, the left side in particular. And this is something that I'm always interested in because part of my background and passion for in science comes in distinction between left and right and as part of that journey. So if you look at da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper, you'll notice that Judas is knocking over the table salt with his left elbow. And because Judas in the Bible betrayed Jesus, people began associating salt with lies and disloyalty. And in Christian beliefs, the devil hangs around behind your left shoulder. And so if you spill salt, the devil is seeing it as an invitation to step in and do evil. So if you throw the salt over your left shoulder, you're blinding him and rendering him helpless. And I love this association with with left and evil. In Latin, um, the word sinistra actually means left, and that's where we get the word sinister from. Yeah, dextrals and sinstrals. I believe the word left itself comes from Old English left, which is can't remember precisely the definition, but it's along the line of like sinister, evil, you know, that sort of thing. Are either of you left-handed? No, no, we're, we're well-behaved boys. We're, we're <laughs> well, I'm right-handed anyway. Uh, my wife is left-handed. Ah, okay, yeah, I'm right-handed as well. But whenever I talk to my students about handedness and I mention the, the historical baggage that comes with the evilness of left-handedness, I still get students who are like new to the university, 18 years old, telling me that when they were raised, they were told not to use their left hand because that's the devil's hand that's the bad hand and we like sure okay you hear about your grandparents being told to do that but it's still happening yes my wife was telling me that she had to learn to use her right hand for a lot of things well and it's unavoidable in a lot of ways because we in, are in a right-handed world there are some practical things where you simply have to because everything's set up to be right-handed the re reality is the world should be more flexible because it, ca it can be i was actually just at a talk um where we were looking at handedness and there's different ways that you can define handedness. Um, so maybe you would think about it on the rise because we are expanding the way we think about left-handedness versus just non-right-handedness. It's not that someone is either purely left-handed and they use their left hand for everything or purely right-handed and you use your right hand for everything, but there's some people who may switch up their hands or who may prefer one hand for one task 
another hand for another task. And those we may refer to as more mixed-handed or inconsistent-handed. I think the other thing which, um, when we talk about the world being predominantly right-handed, it's probably somewhat true. But I also think we have to remember, because left-handed was associated with being evil, a lot of people probably wouldn't admit to being left-handed down the centuries. Mm, so, of course... It, it, that exaggerates the degree to which um, the, the stats suggest that everyone's right-handed. Our best estimates, uh, according to science right now, are 10.6% of the population are left-handed. If you include non-right-handedness, I'm not sure what the stats would be. But of course, there do seem to be, like you're picking up on, some potential cultural differences that may come from some cultures still more heavily pushing against left-handedness and the acceptability of using your left hand. See, I love it when this happens. I can get so much material out of a riddle about salt. <laughs> it's because you've got intellectuals on your team, my dear boy. Two is the score. The team are told that they must find the maid to learn their quest and that the fish is off today. The team advised Tony to take the silver, which they are still mistaking for a snuff box. Whiskey! And the bat's wings. The apple, of course, goes in the knapsack. Now, this is going to be a bit of a surprise to Bianca because this bit's not in her script but we've often talked about how the riddles in the show range from insultingly easy to infuriatingly difficult so with that in mind we're going to play a little game with Bianca today a game that we're calling Riddle Me This It's time for Riddle Me This Here's your host, Martin Harder. Bianca, we're going to ask you five riddles that have appeared in Nightmare at some point during its eight-series run. We'd like to dance as many as you can, but before you can start, you must challenge us by calling I Challenge. I Challenge. You had the opportunity to refuse there, Bianca. I'm sorry, Bianca. You had the opportunity to refuse. You've, you've declined it. You must challenge now. You could have said no. Oh. Uh, well, I'm up for a challenge. I challenge Martin Odoni. Oh, okay. Okay, so I'll, I'll ask the first one then. <laughs> this one was from one of the Weeping Doors in season four, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to try and talk in a quavering, um, morose voice. <laughs> Gallstones are found on the shore of Galway Bay. True or false? That was really good. Gallstones? Um... That's weird. False. Truth accepted. I'm actually quite good at parodying the voices on that. That is show. a yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Does that mean I've got to do? I've got to try and do my Cedric voice now. I think so. You're good at the Cedric voice. That I'm not sure my. I can do the shouting voice. I can't quite do his quieter voice. Where falls the blow that harms you not, yet ends the state of common man? Can you repeat that, please? <laughs> Should I do it in my Once and once only. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it in my normal voice. Where falls the blow that harms you not, yet ends the state of common man? It doesn't help that you're from North America because this is very much a, an aristocratic thing. I, I genuinely have no idea what to make of this <laughs> and what it's even asking me. Um, where, where, do you, where do you hit, get, where do you get hit without getting hurt? But it ends your condition as a commoner, so to speak. Does that help? Yes. Uh, but I also, I'm sure once I hear the answer, I'm going to yeah. feel a bit silly. Remember, uh, these, these riddles had to be answered by 10-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, this one is not fair. Yeah, this, this um, one is not fair. No. 
We'll just say brain because the brain has no nerve endings, but it will kill you if you fall. On the shoulder is the answer. The sword dub of knighthood. Oh! say this is a commoner, <laughs> but he doesn't harm you. So. Uh, okay. That is not fair on 10-year-olds, is it? No. The poor 10-year-olds. <laughs> this episode is the very first episode and pretty much the only episode I've ever seen. Not realizing that they had come in and had already done some stuff previously. Uh, until I watched the preceding episode after this episode. That first riddle too with the, the clansmen and they said army and I, I was, I, I well, I, maybe it's the accent I had difficulties understanding, but I was surprised um, and I was worried for the poor children that the whole show was going to be complicated riddles. <laughs> it pretty much was in series one. Only about 78%. Um, not all. <laughs> <laughs> there were too many riddles in season one, I think. That's, I think that's fair to say. They did go some way to sorting it out in series two. It's more when they're obscurely worded. And I think that's, that's the thing we're highlighting with this particular mm. one. Um, where falls the blow that harms you not? You have to have your brain tuned into a very medieval way of speaking to be able to mm. follow that. Um, and I'm not really sure it's fair to expect kids to be able to do that yet. This is, uh, I think this was actually from the, might have been from the same episode, this one. A prince of Islam on his day held all of Christendom at bay. To Moorish hordes, he was Salah ad-Din. But how today do we name him? Can I ask what does Moorish mean? <laughs> Um, well, is this a UK? The, the Sorry, Moors were a, a warrior race um, in the Middle East, basically. Oh, okay. I was thinking Moorish, like. Oh, no, no, no. We <laughs> <laughs> mean, but no. Are we talking about zombies here? What's going on? Um, Do you want to repeat it? Yes, please. Okay, a prince of Islam on his day held all of Christendom at bay. To Moorish hordes, he was Salah ad-Din. How today do we name him? It's more a general knowledge question. Malcolm. Oh. Malcolm. Uh, that's an interesting name to find <laughs> for anybody living in the Middle East and... <laughs> during the Crusades. <laughs> uh, it is. It is a question about the Crusades. I should stress that at this point. The answer is actually Saladin. It really is mainly a question whether or not you've heard of him. I, I do tend to get very depressed when I realise how many people haven't heard of him, but. Um, have you heard of Richard the Lionheart? No. To yeah, be fair, though, you are a history scholar, so... Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, basically, there was um, a mighty king of England um, who led the Crusades, the Christian Crusades, to the Middle East to try and capture Jerusalem around the 12th century. Um, and Saladin was basically his arch enemy. He should be a lot more famous than he is, I think. Yeah. So you're saying I was close. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm! Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> How can I put this? No. <laughs> the kids didn't get this one right either. To be fair, they didn't say Malcolm though. <laughs> what was it they did say again? I can't remember. I think they just I I, I can't remember either. But it definitely it, it definitely wasn't right. Well they said Mohammed, didn't they? Yes. They got it wrong by about seven centuries. Richard the Lionheart, the way I always remember it, he's the one played by uh Sean Connery in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. That's true. <laughs> Or if you prefer, he was played by Sir Patrick Stewart in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Is that why I like the movie so much? Ah, right. We found the level, have we? Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so the next riddle is, On earth I was born, deep fires tempered me, mountains slept on me, my father was younger than I, and a sculptor gave me my face. What am I made of? Marble? I'll give her that one. Yeah. Yes, we'll, we'll give you that one. 
Uh, the answer is stone. But Marvel is a form of stone. And finally, this one's from season three. Which is deeper? The ocean or a saucer of water? Stop and think about it. Uh, <laughs> at first, this feels like very much a trick question. Which is deeper? Yeah. Is it the ocean or a source of water? Think about it. Or a... Uh, well, my instinct wants to say ocean, so I'm going to go with the other one. So you're going to go to a source of water? Yes, please. Oh, oh stones? <laughs> what oceans have you ever seen? What's... <laughs> What sort of cutlery and plates are you using? When you, how much tea do you need? <laughs> I have, well, when you have a bottomless glass of water, surely they reach deeper than the Mariana's Trench. <laughs> they fit in the cupboard beautifully. Uh, okay, right. So we were talking about a particular source of water. It was deliberate double bluff, put in context. The first two riddles he'd asked um, were ones which had the. Um, the instinctive answer is actually the wrong one. And then you ask this one as a third one, where the instinctive answer, of course, is it very obviously the correct one. They got it wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, I thought that maybe you would twist the definition of deep on me to something that I just <laughs> hadn't thought of, but... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's purposefully designed to wrong foot you, that, that riddle. Where am I? You're in the room. Um, and there's, um, there's a scorpion, so... And there's a sting in this tail, and it's deadly. Agility is called for. So anyway, they arrive at the scorpion chamber. Arguably the best use of the chamber normally houses the giant snake, but it doesn't really work until season three when flagstones are removed from the front of the fireplace. There's a completely clear path down the right-hand side here. So um, yeah, so they, they then remove flagstones from the fireplace to force the dungeoneer to walk in a path that does go through the scorpion's reach, and that makes it work a bit better. Here, mm. it's laughably easy to get around it. Does the scorpion move predictably? Are they able to kind of time? Well, yeah, it's um, it's limited animation. It swings its tail, turns briefly towards the front of the screen, then turns back, swings the tail again. That's really all it can do. You just have to time when the scorpion is facing towards the front. Even if you miss time it, the truth is it only does you a little bit of damage anyway. Like a lot of stuff in Nightmare, it's actually more spectacle than anything else. So yeah, the team made very short work of that one. Where am I? Hey, Tony. Tony! You're in a room, yeah, with five doors in front of you. Yeah. Three of them have got locks on them. One's got uh, some cards on it. Yeah. And the other one's got a horse from a chess set on it. A challenge here, team. It seems you're being challenged to a game of luck or a game of skill. The other doors appear to be locked, and of course you have no key. Decide, but decide quickly. This is the five-door chamber previously used in series one for the moving keyhole chamber. Thank goodness it's not being used for that here and we don't have to put up with Casper again for a while longer. Three of the doors are locked and the remaining two feature a hand of playing cards with the ace of spades uppermost and a white nice piece from a chess set. So the team resolved to take the door with the knight and prepare to meet the challenge that awaits them. So is this sort of almost like a choose your own adventure in this respect that depending on which door you go through, you, you'll get a different... That's the idea. Um, it's a lot more linear in, in practice than um, than it wants to admit it is. There probably is only one correct way out of most rooms in, in practice. And you go the other one, you end up getting locked in or blown up or something. Keep going. 
Where am I? Hey, Tony. Tony! You in a room? There's a chessboard on... This is chessboard on the floor. Yeah. Oh, dear. This is not chess as you know it, but combat chess. Remember, Tony. Tony! Yours is the knight's move, and you must be careful not to step off your own game squares. The trouble here is the enemy bishop is deadly, and you are quite vulnerable. You must move only when it's your move, and you have just seconds to complete it. Safe exit is your target. This is actually one of my favourite sections, because it can get really tense. I always enjoy the sort of the thinking man's atmosphere, or thinking woman's atmosphere, where case may be of combat chess um it, it's you definitely you definitely feel like you're you're playing a strategy game here the dungeoneer is taking up the role of the uh, the white knight and so he moves in the knight's move across a, across this chessboard floor and ranged against the dungeoneer is the bishop of the black monastery which can only move in the bishop's move obviously can only move in diagonals the basic strategy you've got to come up with is a way of getting from the start of the chessboard to the far end where there's a a, a doorway um, just inside from the far corner and you have to use the um, the knight's move to get to there without being intercepted by the bishop. In the cold light of day, as a challenge, it's inherently flawed. As everybody who's ever learned chess will be able to tell you, the king, moving one space at a time, cannot be caught in checkmate even by a combination of the bishop and the other king. How can therefore can the dungeoneer, using the knight's move, which therefore takes it in three, three or four spaces on every turn, be caught by a bishop on its own? And the answer is it can't unless they make an incredibly stupid move. I think for me, what would have been the hardest challenge here would have been, well, and throughout most of these rooms, um, I was impressed with how good they were with their lefts and rights. There was a team in season four from Wales, um, and there's, there's, it's become one of the most famous catchphrases in Nightmare is, Side step to your left. There was this gigantic um, gap in the floor to his left. It became one of the most notorious end of games in nightmare history. Left-right confusion isn't that uncommon, um, at, well, as you see in the kids. But one thing that I think is pretty neat is there's part of our brain. Uh, I won't get into too much technical detail here, but um, if there's damage to the specific part of our parietal lobe, which is sort of in the back, upper back of our head, um, it can lead to something called Gerstmann syndrome, where one of the key syndrome or the key symptoms of Gerstmann syndrome is right-left confusion, where it's like to the pathological level. So if someone with Gerstmann syndrome was trying to play this game, they would be sending people into the pits all the time. <laughs> that actually might explain one or two <laughs> advisors, unfortunately. <laughs> Not saying the children have brain damage. <laughs> But it, it would add a level of difficulty, certainly. Now concentrate. The game is on, and it's your move. Tony begins on square E1, the bishop on B7. Right then, Tony, take a few steps forward till we say stop. Keep going. Stop. Now a few side, side steps. steps to your left. Okay, stop. That's it, stop there. Tony moves to D3, and the bishop takes its turn. Now wait for the bishop's move, he's a cunning devil. Where's he going to land? <laughs> no. Oh god. No. Bishop to d5. Tony, two, a few side steps to your left. That's it. Stop now, step forward. That's it, well done. Tony moves to b4. Now the bishop must move again. Now think ahead, team, where's he likely to land? 
No, we can't land there or there because we'll take you. Bishop's blues back to B7, and at this point, Tregard reminds the team that Tony can move backwards if required. Mm -hmm. You can move backwards, it's a, guess, a chess game. If we stay, come back there, come back stay there. there. Tony, yeah. take yeah. one step backwards. Take now a few steps to your right, side steps to your right. Keep going. Now step backwards again. That's it. Team, move Tony back to D3. Now, where will he move? Think, keep thinking ahead. Where's he going to land? Ah. In an unexpected move, the bishop moves to c6. The team are carefully plotting their next move. There, we can go there. Yeah, there we'll... Tony, take a few steps forward till we say stop. Uh, stop. Now sidestep to your left. That's it, we're on. Tony is now at c5, right in front of the bishop. This is actually a clever move. Right next to the bishop, right in front of the bishop, horizontally or vertically, is paradoxically always the safest space on the board. That's at square c5. It's the only place they are safe because they are protected by Sir Clive Sinclair. Now, how are you going to get out to plan that? Get the right number to get through the door. Yes. Uh, Tony now has two possible moves that will position him in the right place to escape, but the bishop blocks one of them. No, I would go there. Then. Tony, side steps to your left until we say stop, please. Keep going. Thank you. Now walk. Step forward. And again, just a little bit. Now, can you get out of the door with the knight's move? moves to a6 and the bishop to c6, leaving Tony with clear move to the exit. Okay. Tony, sidestep to your right. No, don't you bang into the bishop. Oh, no, 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 and a door straight in front, in the centre of the wall, and there's a table with... Caution, team, a food here, but guess who's coming to dinner? Maybe a giant. Maybe a giant's going to come and eat this chicken. A giant with a very easily satisfied appetite. It'd be a very small giant. Mm. Oh, it'll be the giant from the first series that was only ever filmed from above, and thus looked really, really small. So it was an optical illusion. He was just a lot, lot nearer the camera than the dungeoneer. The team guide Tony to the table, upon which is a whole roast chicken, and advise him to put the food in his knapsack. But the second Tony picks it up... Stop, stop, stop. Watch it, Tony. Yeah, so you get the, la the lasers coming out of the lion's head um, that is just above the door. The lasers come out, they shoot bits of the floor away, and the, the kids are understandably getting a bit stressed here. No, don't step backwards. Tony, Tony come round side the side of a side step to your right. We were wondering, Bianca, if you could tell us a bit about what happens in the brain where stress is involved. That's a big and... Good question. I okay. I won't get into too much technical detail because I give an hour and a half lecture specifically about what happens when we're doing stress. Fun fact: there are two different stress responses that we have. There's a fast stress response and the slow stress response. The fast stress response you might have heard of fight or flight. So our sympathetic nervous system is activated and it really gets us ready. Technically, there's four apps: fight, flight, flee, and fornicate. 
And so during this fast stress response, we have a rush of adrenaline that's being released through our adrenal glands, which are right above our kidney. And this adrenaline rush increases your sweating, increases your your heart rate, your blood pressure. It's basically immobilizing you to run away or freeze in place or fight or whatever you need to do to survive. The slow stress response is a bit slower because there's a release of hormones from the brain that need to go through the bloodstream that eventually also reach the adrenal glands. But instead, it stimulates a different part and it releases cortisol. So instead of adrenaline, we have cortisol. And it takes about 20 minutes for cortisol to peak. So that's why it's a slow stress response. Uh, And cortisol is more um, enabling us to maintain steady supplies of blood sugar. So if you are experiencing a stressful event for a period of time, cortisol will help you kind of cope with that. Um, helps control swelling after injury. Uh, also, our immune system is suppressed when this happens. What else can I tell you? I guess, so short-term stress can be good for us. You know, it gets you motivation to act, to escape from the potential giant that wants your chicken. That's an extremely specific situation. <laughs> Who knows? Does it not do that in any other situation? Only when a giant is trying to steal your chicken? Yes, pretty much. Uh, All right, okay. An exception it. is if there's also a dinosaur jumping out at a bush from behind you. I want to hear you use the giant example in one of your lectures now. <laughs> it, it, hey, if our if my students know what this is, then maybe it'll maybe it'll go. Otherwise, they'll <laughs> just think I've gone a little bonkers. But this is why long term stress can be really bad, and it can have health consequences mm. because it's reducing your immune system functioning. You can get sick more easily. Your wounds heal slower if you are under a lot of stress for a really long period of time, especially during childhood. Like if you have a neglectful or or bad childhood, um, it can actually change your brain. There's parts of your brain that may become a little bit smaller. There's a part called the hippocampus, which is really important for memory. And so hopefully these children aren't undergoing a lot of long-term stress. It's just short bursts that's getting them ready to deal with what they need to deal with. And they do deal with it really well. I noticed there's some very intelligent maneuvering by the team here. Um, the temptation yeah. um, when the gun, when the shot started coming down would have been just to carry on guiding him around the back of the table and then turn him around. Instead, they do the sensible thing, which is they bring him back round the table so they can keep an eye on where his feet are. And therefore, they can see whether or not he's about to step on one of the gaps in the flagstones. I was quite impressed with this team of kids, especially in contrast when I jumped back an episode. And a lot of time they were saying, like, come on, go, go, go. And without giving nice, precise instructions and... Um, I yeah, I liked this team of kids. I thought they did well. They're one of the youngest teams in season two, so um, perhaps inevitably it didn't turn out too well for them. Spoiler alert! But I, I do, they did show signs of real potential given their age. So as we say, despite the amount of urgency, the team keep their head and guide Tony through the exit. And my God, the relief on their faces when they finally do. Run forward. Where am I? Okay, Tony, you're in a room that's a mixture of cave walls and wooden walls, and there's a pot in the middle yeah. with a fire beneath it, and there's a looks like an old lady, perhaps a witch. Dratted little dungeoneers! Interfering tacklepot! Do you want to do this bit? Because I know Mildred's one of your favourites. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so not only do we have the presence of the awesome Mary Miller, aka Mildred, in this scene, we also have everybody's least favourites, preschool teacher Greppel. Um, you trapped me into doing that one, didn't you? <laughs> you cunning swine. Uh, 
I think it evens itself out. Yeah, it does, I suppose. Uh, Gretel tells the Dungeoneer that Mildred was going to make her an everlasting beauty spell. Did you notice Mildred mocking her in the background as well? Oh, relentlessly. Yeah, I don't really blame her. I can't tell if that's um, Mildred mocking Gretel or it's Mary Miller making fun of Audrey Gritchett. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I get the feeling, the impression that um, Mildred saying, I get to play these powerful sorceress or this incredibly evil witch. There's you playing somebody from play school. So as you may have been teasing Audrey Jenkins in there. One observation I made, um, by the way, I, I reckon, um, I counted this morning, I think Gretel's dress would have caught fire at least four times during the scene. <laughs> yes. Audrey Jacobson was twirling around. It kept, it kept on passing through the fire under the cauldron. <laughs> Maybe they have excellent fireproof materials. They must do. Uh, they've got excellent health and safety standards in 13th century <laughs> English dungeons. They do. And I, I do love it when they misjudge where they are on the actual uh, background. My favourite example is definitely last episode when Traegar clearly walked off a cliff. Yes. <laughs> At the end of the winning quest, you can see very clearly he's about to step over the side as he's... Yeah. <laughs> I do love the backgrounds that David Rowe is an amazingly talented artist. Tremendous perspective ability that he's got. It's not only beautifully artistically, but it's also beautiful mathematically. Every aspect of perspective is done right down to the millimetre. I know David Rowe from Nightmare, and I was mentioning him in conversation with someone else recently who didn't really know Nightmare but suddenly recognised the name as the artist who did the cover for the game James Pond 2 Operation Robocod. I do actually dimly remember that believe it or not it's a, it's a bit of a throwback um, I don't think I ever played it um, but I did see it on sale a few times um, in, I think in the early 1990s I think it was. I think it's been released on almost every generation of um, computers and games consoles since it original release. Mildred was going to make me an everlasting beauty spell <laughs> and I promised to help her if she would. Trouble is she hasn't got any frog's eyes. Have you got some Tony? Tony! Have you? No. You Tony! What have you got then boy? Ground bat's wings. Ground bat's wings? Mildred says that although she can't use the bat's wings for the beauty spells, she'll keep them anyway as they may come in useful. Mm. Um, I, uh, no, I'm, I'm going to say it. I absolutely hate Gretel's role um, in the in this part of the scene. I absolutely hate Gretel's role in anything. Yeah, true. Uh, but I, I think I think it's uh, I think it's some of her absolute wor worst moments here. Um, I don't like saying it because I, I I am aware that Audrey Jenkinson has um has has had some mental health issues in in the um in the decades since. So I'm cautious about criticising here. But we're not really criticising the actress. Uh, we're criticising the character and the writing of the character because it's such a two-dimensional character. What Mildred is saying is she'll keep them anyway so they can come in useful. What can you make then, Mildred? What, what, why are you even asking that? She just said she's going to keep them. Yeah. She didn't say she's going to use them now, but then suddenly she doesn't. You know? I'm not even sure exactly what I'm criticising here, actually. But, um... <laughs> Do these characters all show up in basically every run? They show up in some and not in others. Um, Mildred is played by Mary Miller. There's also a, a sorceress called Lilith, and they sort of um, take turns. Yeah, tend to alternate between quests, don't they? Yeah, um, so... 
and there's Folly the Jester. He appears um, in quite a few quests, um, but again, not all of them, probably for the best. There's a fair old mixture, but uh, I think they were trying to vary it up a bit um, to make sure that it doesn't get stale, because they had a very, very limited cast of characters in the first season, um, and it gets stale, to be perfectly honest. Well, what can you make then, Mildred? You just said it! You just said it. I can make a well spell with bat's wing. <gasps> Mildred, are you sure? 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 Course I'm sure, flippity gibbet. We got Gressel making a, a huge big deal about making a well. She sounds really excited about the fact that when Mildred announces that she can create a deep, dark well, why do you care? You don't want a well. You, you want her to make you permanently beautiful. How is creating a well going to help you with that? The mystery of what could be in the well perhaps is enticing. We know very well by this point that the wellway just means the entrance to the next level. Maybe it could have been a magic well that... Um, when you drink from it, it uh, makes you live longer. I, I don't know. Well, a few Dungeoneers do check first, don't they, if there's anything in the well. The last Dungeoneer of season one actually held his nose before going down. <laughs> well, for all he knows, it's a Lazarus pit. Oh, it could be. That would explain uh, Traegard's appearance improving over the series. Well, no, no, he, de he definitely gets older. Um, I think his, his dress sense probably improves. Wing of bat and toadstool spell. Conjure up a deep, dark well! <laughs> Again, Mildred transforms her cauldron into the wellway to level two. Before they can move, Traegar reminds the team that the maid may have information for them. Why does it have to be Gretel who tells them what the quest is? Why didn't the War Monster just tell them in the first place? Does it really make any difference? I think they were just trying to mix things up a bit, maybe. It just seems a rather pointless way of doing it. Tony! Tony! Ask the maid about our quest. Do you know anything about our quest? A quest, you say? Yes. Yes, I do know something about your quest. Your quest is for the crown, but you may not wear it. Also, you are to have a spell, and it's called Down. Now, come on, into the silly well you go, because we've got really important things to do. It's not beauty she needs, it's a brain! <laughs> So the team get given the spell down, and then they head into the well. Where am I? Okay, Tony, you looks like you're in, inside a kind of creature's mouth or something. Yeah. Oh dear, Mildred's fooled you. She hasn't sent you to level two. She sent you into a monster's stomach instead. Now you better do something fast, for the gruesome business of digestion has begun. After being practically thrown down the well by Gretel, Tony emerges inside the monster's stomach. In a rare case of a team carrying spells between levels, the team use magic to escape. Spell casting. D O W N. And my wife and I were sitting here watching this last night and we just cringed because the implications of what actually happens here, it does not bear thinking about. One thing I was wondering about, though, besides that, is, okay, so the rucksack that they're carrying that's full of food, is that something that all, all children have for every puzzle or could they unload the food into the stomach? The knapsack 
acts as a sort of surrogate stomach. So any food they put in there basically disappears. Uh-huh. It feeds their um their life force, which is like their energy bar. You think, you think oh. the, um, that, that um uh, computer generated face that with a hand and it sort of comes. That's their life force clock, basically. When the background is green, they're healthy. When it's amber, it's uh, not so healthy. And when it's red, it's critical. To keep it topped up, they have to get food occasionally. They put it in the knapsack and the knapsack sort of eats it for them. Understood. Okay, that makes sense. I'm not sure it really does actually think about it. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> when you just don't stop and think about it. You just go with it. Where am I? You're in a room with a door in front straight in front of you on your right and there's a table and a block in just beside it okay tony unusual team most unusual generally the portals of level two are guarded examine objects with care although the food seems real enough after escaping the monster's stomach via means it's best not to discuss Tony finds himself in the familiar surroundings of Cedric's chamber. Conspicuous in his absence, though, is Cedric himself. The team guide Tony to the table, upon which are a pie and a flagon. When the pie is in the knapsack, Traegard asks the team if they think the flagon is empty or full. Shall I look in it? Yeah, take off the lid and pour it out onto the table. Something cold! Put it down. Put it down. Put it down. Turn to your left. So we get a ghost image of Merlin, uh, basically. Um, I just want to say, I always snigger um, when Tony has to repeat his name because he sounds really irritated. Speak, spirit! Who are you? Answer him. Tony. You're very distant, very faint. Call louder. Tony! You, Tony! Anyway, as soon as Tony removes the flagon's lid, we get this faint image of Merlin. You can't hear him at all. Um, you ask Tony what he seeks, and Tony replies that he's searching for a crown. And then we get one of the worst puns in the history of Nightmare. Oh, this really won't do. I'm not carrying on long conversations on spirit level. It's far too tiresome. On spirit level? <laughs> scene isn't it it is nightmare is often strange but this is strangely different from nightmare yeah it's out of place i'm not sure what the quest gains from having having it in there at all maybe lawrence weber just wanted a day yeah, off could be maybe had some dentistry to do okay but this it's, it's not as if Merlin does any riddles or anything is it it just seems to have been pasted in just to give john woodnut something to do and this exit from the room is a bit odd for them as well because it's the, the only real instance we've seen of them not being great at maneuvering and it's just simply exiting a room they seem to zigzag him out yes it therefore prolongs a scene that already feels unnecessary so to me everything was new and unusual and i didn't have any particular thoughts on whether it it fit or not i was wondering what he meant by um like discover me in rocks or whatever it was that he said i think that's some druid reference people sometimes think of merlin as the last of the druids the pagan um mythology often sees life in water in rocks in plants it sees gods and spirits in all of them for me anything that i didn't understand i had just assumed was another clue 
that could potentially be used down the line. It's most likely that had they survived, they would have uh, worked out the meaning of what he said. Maybe. It just sounded like sorcery babble or something. Where am I? Okay, Tony, you in a room with some steps in front of you and a clue type clue objects on the table. It's the level two clue room being used in probably the best way it will ever be used in the entire series. Almost certainly. Once again, we, we always say of this clue room, it's, it's a beauty of a room, this level two clue room. It's always the best one for having a haunting and it's got a haunting and it's a haunting has a lot of information to give us it is possibly the best haunting and it's the first time we're seeing it here but before we address that let's just congratulate the team on figuring out the sending a blindfolded kid down a stairway without using a banister is probably a bad idea are there some instances where the dungeoneer has fallen down the stairs we think so we're not absolutely sure but we think that there's been some retakes done so now for the first time we are introduced to one of the most genuinely unsettling entities in nightmares entire run the oracle of confusion this unnerving yet not unfriendly entity takes the form of an ethereal face with a feminine appearance uttering words that are inaudible this um character is actually a unique one um in nightmare because it's one that ended up being played by two different actresses Mm. Um, it's played by Audrey Jenkinson, the aforementioned Gretel, um, in this scene. But Jenkinson um, wasn't in season three, but the uh, character was retained. And so Zoe Loftin, who played Melisandre in season three, she ended up playing uh, the Oracle of Confusion as well. It's the only example, to the best of my memory, of an actual recast. The Oracle of Confusion doesn't appear to be aware of anything around it. It's got all this jumble of information in its head and it just keeps on muttering it non-stop. But it doesn't appear to be speaking to Tony particularly. So I'm wondering, because obviously this thing is quite unnerving, I think you'll agree, but I'm wondering if there is like a difference in the brain between being unnerved by something and actually being scared by something, because it does feel like a, a different thing. Perhaps there's some element of fear to being unnerved. So I would say feeling unnerved would be a much more complex emotion than just the basic fear emotion. And we can certainly distinguish between like these basic emotions like fear are emotions that we see worldwide, cross-culturally. They're expressed in the same way. The bodily responses are the same. But when you get to more complex secondary emotions like feeling unnerved or there's some sort of uncanny valley and just not feeling quite settled, um, there's a lot of like variability and perhaps, well, you'll see a lot of cultural differences in how people will react when they're feeling unnerved, for example. But in terms of how that reflects in the brain, I imagine we would see some overlap with fear, but perhaps some other basic emotions might combine together to produce this. So I'm not sure if we could speculate what those would be. I think curiosity has to be one of them, doesn't it? That's a really good point. When you're experiencing fear, not only do you have those stress responses that I was talking about, but there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is really primary for our fear response. And when you're feeling unsettled, you're probably relying a lot more on what the front part of your brain, which is more higher cognition, thinking, planning, assessing what's going on around you. So maybe that might be one difference. I would say from my own experiences of outright fear, when you're full of fear, you don't really want to know anything about it at all. You just want to get away from it. 
when you're on nerves, you may just dare to step a bit closer and look a bit more closely. So I'd say that's where being unnerved works completely differently from being outright afraid. Mm-hmm. I'd agree. Yeah, it's something I'd never thought about before, honestly, other than the very broad generalizations between primary and secondary or like simple and complex emotions. So the team guide Tony to the altar on which are a selection of clue objects, a block of soap, a scroll and a gauntlet. After a full 35.77 seconds, and yes, I timed it down to the millisecond, Tregard decides it just might be a good idea to make a passing mention to the giant floating goat's head. Goat's head? Yeah, shall I say that again? That is really (laughs) mean to Audrey Jenkinson. Take it back. (laughs) Goat's head. Tregard decides it... Vegard decides that it just might be a good idea to make a passing mention to the giant f- floating ghost head. He says that I'm offensive. I mean, honestly, <laughs> this is the grief I get, Bianca, from this this <laughs> charlatan here. Caution, team. Present here is the oracle of confusion. It knows much, but there is no order to its knowledge. It is sometimes best not to question it. But then again... Who knows? Tony, if you wish to hear its voice, merely shut your eyes tightly and raise the helmet of justice. But do not open your eyes. It could be very dangerous. Time is coming that was past. Dreadmog who causes all disruption. Soap will cleanse, but not the spirit. Accept the challenge. Take the word, but do not read it. All action is opposed. The way out is also the way back. The cure for disruption is unity. The time is coming. The time is coming. Replace the helmet, Tony. You've heard enough. So what can we really surmise from the Oracle's clues? There are bits of genuine babble in what the Oracle is saying. And unfortunately, it's possible, therefore, to mistake genuinely useful bits of information for babble as well. And I'm afraid that's actually what the team has done here. But it is a very, very subtle clue that's um, sort of hidden away in there. When the Oracle says, accept the challenge, the traditional way of saying that in... in, um, medieval fiction is take up the gauntlet and there is a gauntlet on the table so it's actually giving you the instruction you've got to take the gauntlet with you i did not pick up on that whatsoever there was a lot of information like you said as a total noob to this um i had just assumed that everything was relevant and i could not follow along there was a lot of information that she spouted out yeah the idea of the oracle is the oracle knows all but doesn't have any context. So it will just spout out random information, some of it useful, some of it not. The soap will cleanse, but not the spirit, which is where they came across with that. I think they just they, they heard the word soap and then assumed that was what they needed to take. It's an easy mistake to make. Yeah, I, I do rather wonder where, um, whether this team could be seen as a bit unlucky. Well, I don't think it's unlucky because the clue was definitely there. In, in their there. position, if I was only about 10 or 11 years old, I think I'd have probably made the same mistake. Maybe a team in their mid-teens or just a little bit earlier, um, you could expect better from them. But I, I, I think they were a bit unlucky here with that one. The advisors tell Tony to pick up the soap and the scroll and then guide him out. Bianca, do you want to do this bit? Um, do I need to do your, your silly... Well, yeah, Silly. <laughs> you like? You can't do it any less than he did. Ah, uh, 
Okay, Tony has entered the Vale of Mugdred. The challenge here is that there's a piece of the crown under the bridge, and Tony has to literally lie on his stomach and reach down in order to get it. Tony can only just reach it, and when he does manage to collect it... That's it, you've got, you've got the clip. Right, he's got it, he's got it. Right, right. right. now if you put... The, all right, bring your arm back up onto the bridge now. And uh, keep, put the items Beware, one in the team. Beware the mindless threat of the mechanical warrior. The first appearance of the automaton. An early example of techno sorcery before um, the techno sorcerer actually joined the cast. It's played by Edmund Dane. You could almost see it fitting in an episode of Bagless. What's your name? Sorry? What is your name? Did somebody just say something? okay that was me i was trying to go back to the episode um and try to contextualize this for myself i i remember the noises did he actually show up yes very briefly okay it's basically a kind of gigantic wind-up toy that chases the dungeoneer but is moving so slowly and so stiltedly that it's not really that typical for the dungeoneer to get away from it no it's just really added for a bit of tension it can be impressively relentless though so as soon as you hear the sound it does become a bit unnerving it's an example of a hurry up mechanic i find hurry up mechanics to be perhaps the most stressful for me do you guys ever play bubble bobble yes yes do you remember that that terrifying white ghost thing that would chase you and then he would have the red eye he gave me nightmares oh yeah i, I don't think you're alone there that is appropriate nightmares what? <laughs> we do actually get skull hauntings quite similar in their way in nightmare they get away from the um automaton easily enough where am i Hey Tony, you're on a kind of wheel with another one diagonally in front of the team. These are the mills of doom. Another mechanical threat if ever I saw one. Only the centers of each cog are safe. Don't delay now. Life force energy fading. I still love the mills of doom. I, th- I, th- I think the name of them does sound a little bit too much like a 1970s Doctor Who title. The team's maneuvering skills have been pretty good this far. Uh, you know, aside for that one awkward exit a few chambers ago. And despite some slightly unnecessary jumping here and there, they do make quick work of this puzzle. They're not a bad team. They're not a bad team. They're, um, I've seen worse teams get further. Do you think, though, that our opinion on this team may be at least partly based on the fact we're still kind of basking in the warm afterglow of a winning quest? Yeah, I'd actually thought, I suppose it depends on, on who the beholder is, but I'd have thought, if anything, it would have the opposite effect. That's true, yeah. What do you think, Bianca? Yeah, the, having that context, uh, that's a good point. For me, I didn't have that context, and I was impressed with them. And in fact, when I went back and watched the previous winning team in the previous episode, uh, I was actually more impressed with this team, even though the other team won. There you go. In fact, quite the opposite. Then We genuinely have got an uncluttered perspective when we say this team are pretty good. Bianca was watching them in isolation, which has still come to the same conclusion. I, I think that is pretty, a pretty good sign. Where am I? Hey, Tony, you in a room with four doors and a skeleton. Onto the catacomb bites. Yay! My favourite monster. Bianca, what was your media thought when you saw this monster? (laughs) My first thought, okay, it made me think of Terraria. Um, I don't know if any of you have played Terraria, but there's a dungeon that you enter and there's a skeleton, but he actually has a torso. So my first thoughts were of Terraria, and then my second thought was, where's his torso? Is he okay? (laughs) Um, But I know that as a kid, I would have found him scary. Yeah. 
uh, and his his twitching, his movement seemed unpredictable. Um, so, like trying to think of it from a kid's perspective, the movements after a while become predictable. But there's the moments of where the head suddenly jerks around. Um, before you picked up the pattern, it it can actually be quite startling. That that flash of red in its eyes that you see definitely. Is there any sort of background about why he exists and where he came from? Yes. Um. According to the first Nightmare novel, originally, uh, before Traegar became the dungeon master, the castle nightmare castle was ruled by a sorceress called the gruagach and the gruagach um, amongst other things had a power to give life to, to well to spellbind dead objects um he'd created the nightmare challenge to sort of kill off um the bravest and the best of english warriors when he killed one of them on a whim he decided to use the bones of that warrior and sort of warp them and reconnect them and created this strange four-legged bony monster and he called it the catacomb bite the poor creature it's quite interesting when you kind of get into it and you realize there's this really deep lore behind this kids game show dire warning team catacomb bites if handled at all must be handled with kid gloves here you needed the gauntlet to subdue this monster it was the challenge you were told to accept but of course you declined it now you must find what exit you may and hurry Life force energy critical. If it wasn't obvious before that the team were now in losing state, this kind of really cements it, doesn't it? Yes, I think so. When it becomes clear that they didn't have the right object, it, yes, there's still doorway they can leave through, but you know it's the wrong path. If you look closely behind the catacomb bite, you can actually see there's two more doors behind them. It's usually the inside left door is, is supposed to be the one that you go through to leave the chamber. Sometimes you go through the side doors instead. On this occasion, it's pretty obvious that the uh, side door that's available does not go onto the right path. Where am I? Hey, Tony, you're in a room with three doors and they've all got portcullises in them. Welcome to one of Mogred's little playpens, Dungeoneer. Play a while. Play forever. <laughs> I suppose even Mogdred's got to have some fun. Unsurprisingly, the team have met their end. It's nice that the production team didn't resort to another bomb room death this time. And even nicer that we get a gleefully menacing appearance from Mogdred in his first kill scene. Mm, there's a few things to, to discuss here. Firstly, they're in the same room they were in just a moment ago. The catacomb bite chamber is also the variant four-door chamber. Yes. The question is, do we really credit Mogdred with this kill? Do we really? Their life force was critically low. Yeah, and, and they were locked in and there was nowhere for them to turn. It's very, very scary because the Mogdreds laugh over the final seconds of it. I ran to the toilet <laughs> almost as soon as the program was over <laughs> when I was a kid. I still love Mogdred here, especially his kind of pompousness. And love his line, Whoa! Welcome to one of Mogdred's playpens. Play a while, play forever. Because it riffs directly on a, a, an old Commodore 64 game called Impossible Mission. Another visitor. Stay a while. Stay forever. 
And that really kind of calls back to Nightmare's Roots, where it was based on ZX Spectrum games such as Dragon Talk and Attic Attack. And Rogue. And Rogue, yes. I didn't know that that was actually a deliberate mangled quote. Well, I'm assuming it is. I think it's too close to the actual quote for it to be unintentional. I would agree. You've got to still hand it to John Woodnut. That laugh at the end. Oh my God. He always seems to have a lot more fun playing Mogdred than he does playing Merlin. It's always more fun to play the bad guy. You're out, I'm afraid, team. So let's get you all safely out of the dungeon. Spellcasting. D-I-S-M-I-S-S. Traegard dismisses the team in the usual manner. And uh, we said this before, but I'm going to repeat it again for Bianca's benefit. This is an important part of the show because they show that the kids are actually still alive. And that's more important than a lot of people give it credit for because there were some problems at the beginning, weren't there, Martin? I don't know if you've heard the name Mary Whitehouse. She, she was very, uh, very prominent in the 70s and 80s. Can I just say Mary Whitehouse was to kids television in Britain what Jack Thompson was to violent video games in America. Mm. I was thinking more along the lines of the Comics Code Authority in America. Um, yes. That's right. That's good, yeah. Campaigners um, who, who have an entirely arbitrary standard about what's acceptable and what isn't. But she was quite prominent attacking TV. She spent a lot of her time attacking Doctor Who. And then when, when Nightmare started um, in the late 1980s, she's not entirely to blame for this. I, mean, I, I must make this clear. She's not entirely to blame for the controversy she created. But a member of the press came up to her and basically said, They've got this television new program on kids' TV where they're showing kids getting sent into a, a dungeon and getting slaughtered and getting violently killed. What do you think of that? She initially reacted very badly to it, but she then finally got to watch an episode of it and she saw the way they were very, very careful to emphasise when the Dungeoneer was killed off that he's actually, he does, he or she does live on in reality outside the dungeon. Um, and when she saw that, she said, actually, no, this has been done very responsibly, no problem. And she sent an apology. Oh, good for her. As I've said many times before, I do not have a high opinion of Mary Whitehouse, but I do give her credit for being able to say she was sorry. Round the Bend came out and she had something else to moan about. Instead. That got in the way as well, didn't it? Yes. Farewell, Tony, Craig, Dean, and Tony. Yours was a brave bid, but now others are keen to challenge. But first, watchers must wait, and dungeon must pause till time turns once more. Join us again soon for nightmare, and remember, life's not worth a candle without adventure. This is unusual for an episode to actually end at this point, isn't it? Yes, it's um, it's very rare that um, a quest ends right as the episode is running out of time. If it's not something that they do on the regular, why would they specifically want to do it for for this one? Well, that's the question, isn't it? On the subject of nightmares, I understand that we don't really know a great deal about uh. Uh, what causes dreams but what do we know yeah nightmares are very very common in childhood and um, completely normal and they tend to abate as we get older we still occasionally have nightmares Uh, like you said we don't know a whole lot Um, I can tell you that different kinds of dreams can happen in different kinds of sleep so when you fall asleep you go through sleep stages and if you have like a Fitbit or something it might be able to tell you here's when you were sleeping deeply here's when you were sleeping more light Here's when you were in REM sleep. And so REM, rapid eye movement sleep, is 
um, stereotypically when you think that you're dreaming or maybe having nightmares. And we know that that kind of sleep is really important for memory consolidation. So you're kind of taking the day's events and um, your brain is embedding the stuff that you learned in the day or that you did in the day um, in your brain so that it's making it more permanently there. And so as you're sort of revisiting and as your brain is revisiting and reactivating the stuff that you went through and that you thought and that you felt, um, that tends to be thought of what comes through in our dream imagery and our dream scape. And I'm not sure why, why it would be different if that might explain like why kids have nightmares more so than adults hmm. new things can be scary and everything is new when you're a kid compared to an adult um but then when you're more in a deep sleep uh so this is where you go through you you have four stages of sleep stage one two three four and each one is progressively deeper and stage four sleep is your deepest and you can have dreams in stage four sleep I think usually those are more um, everyday, like I wrote an essay, I did a math test, um, just regular, rather than fantastical dreamscapes that you may get during REM sleep. Uh, but I, there is a disorder of, uh, if you're, um, oh, what's it called? When, when you're not, you, okay, when you jump into a nightmare state from deep sleep, sometimes you can get, um, night terrors there we go that's what i'm looking for the night terrors and i don't know if any of you have experienced this before i have a friend who has with the night terrors they'll wake up and scream or cry or um but otherwise be completely oblivious to the world around them so a friend of mine who has night terrors he'll wake up and start screaming and then his wife will come and um you know try and calm him but there's nothing you can do in the moment because they are not awake um, but they're still getting these terrors. So that's a whole other form of, of nightmare. And oftentimes they, they won't remember that happening. So it's like a waking nightmare, but you're not awake and you don't remember it happening. But the rest of your family sure remembers because you scared the dickens out of them. Anyway, I rambled a lot about dreams and I don't really know if I got to the core of, of the question of, you know, why do nightmares happen and, and what's happening? And we still have a lot to learn. I think we're a bit closer to understanding it after that, yeah. No, we don't really know how we can lessen the chance of having bad dreams then. Well, you can practice good sleep hygiene. That That is a thing. So um, this is something that I'll, whenever I talk about sleep in classes, I try to end by talking about good sleep hygiene. And a lot of this you'll be familiar with. Um, you know, don't use electronics in your bed um, for perhaps a like two hours before you go to bed phones now have a, a night mode that you can enable and it'll turn the screen yellow and get rid of the blue wavelengths and it's the the blue wavelengths that um signal to a certain part of your brain that hey it's daytime wake up do things but you don't want that when you're going to sleep so um limit you know the amount of blue light you're getting try not to drink caffeine you know that sort of thing before bed that's an obvious one respect your bedroom and keep it for sleep only make it a safe space and a comfortable space don't do work in your bed don't eat in your bed keep it as your sanctuary your comfortable sanctuary so things like that uh, establishing a good routine and also if you're experiencing a lot of stress in your day-to-day -day life 
again, your brain is encoding that when you're sleeping. And the more stress you have, the more likely that's to come out in your dreams and perhaps manifest as a nightmare. So try and reduce stress in your life if you can. Awesome. Thank you very much. Before we go today, we have a comment from Patreon supporter David N. Rabbit. And I'd like to address it here, if I may. This isn't the whole comment. This is just part of it. I honestly haven't remembered the riddles being so vital to progress in the quest. I think they must have got a lot softer in Series 4+, which I'm more familiar with. It's been a while since I saw them, but I don't remember anyone having trouble with the weeping doors. I may remember a couple of places where they're just given points for effort and allowed to carry on despite complete failure. It does, of course, make sense that you should be set back quite harshly for only getting one right, but I don't think it should be a complete dead end. All right, maybe if you say leopard... Were they thinking of caveman fighting mammoths in leopard skin? I completely agree. I don't remember the punishments for getting one riddle wrong being so harsh either. At least not in levels one and two. In the first two seasons, it wasn't that harsh. It was in season three um, when it became a lot, lot um, more difficult to get away with getting riddles wrong. It is true that it got softer again um, after season four. A lot of the time, um, riddles were actually phased out to an extent. They realised that it was starting to slow quest down quite a bit sometimes and it wasn't a particularly plausible substitute for battle. What we're bypassing is they got rid of alternative exits. An awful lot of locations um, that you're in in later seasons, there's only one one exit out of them. So you don't need a clue after a riddle to know which way to go. I'm not sure that I, I've ever really um, taken to that style. Um, I've, I've always felt that it became less and less interactive as a result of these changes. But David N's uh, memory is correct if he, if he feels that um, later series were a bit softer about it. They were. Um, riddles were not essential to things. They were brought back a bit when the Brolican um, appeared in season seven, which is a kind of war monster. As much as I like the Brolican, I have issues with the Brolican. The Brolican was a creature who had had all of its knowledge taken away from it by the big bad. So he would ask the dungeoneered questions. But several times in the series, it became obvious that the dungeoneer could just say anything because the Brolican didn't know any better. By definition, the question master you always want to be quizzed by is the one who doesn't know anything. I don't think anybody could ever quite understand what they were trying to do by introducing the Bolican into the story. So anyway, what do you think of this team? I think they're unlucky. They are as good at manoeuvring as anybody else we've seen um, in season two. Probably better. Not a great deal of, of, of general knowledge has to be said, but then they're young so that they're, they're at an age where they're not likely to have too much good general. They were good enough to get to level three and they were unlucky that they missed a clue that was really quite hidden. Well, kind of echoing in my very limited experience, um, I I enjoyed um, watching the team um, I think generally they seem to work well together and this was really just a, a first run through of a whole new thing for me and I honestly it took me down a backlog of trying to figure out like how did they even do this technologically speaking <laughs> in the 80s but I digress I as a whole um, I really enjoyed it this is the kind of show I would have adored as a kid I would have wanted to be on this show as a kid and do either of you know anybody who's gone on there and and like how did you get on the show is it just like any game show the auditioning process process tightened over the years as they began they, they mastered the art of filtering out really 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 bad contestants we are in contact with a few of the uh former dungeoneers and uh, advisors so do you think um you'll go back and you know watch some of the earlier episodes maybe i might i was actually just speaking with uh, some friends of mine from here in Scotland and um, asking if they'd seen it as a kid and um, the one was a resounding 
oh yes i love it i love this show i always <laughs> wanted to be on it right so that's the end of this episode of nightmare and that's the end of our episode of uh what's our podcast called <laughs> right so that's the end of this episode of nightmare and that's the end of this episode of temporal discussion bianca do you have anything you want to plug if you want to learn more about brain and you know how we were talking about laterality or i mean left versus right if you want more of that in your life you can follow me on twitter it's just at bianca Hatton. and if you like the podcast you can follow us on twitter we're at nightmare pod if you really like the podcast you can give us money on patreon patreon.com forward slash nightmare pod we now have a website which is nightmarepod.co.uk or you can email us on podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk and don't worry if you sent an email to the old address we're still picking it up so we'll see you in two weeks time and in the meantime don't have nightmares just watch them instead Come on in.